You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning. Our scripture today is from John 20, 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, hey everybody. We're in John chapter 20. I invite you to take out your Bibles and go there with me. And I want to remind you that what we're reading is biography. This is narrative. And biography and narrative, especially when it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's God and flesh interacting with humanity, this shows us how things seem to go, how God typically will interact with us, what, what's on his mind, what he's about, and how we should respond. So story, it helps us frame things, helps us frame our life. And this story today um, is about the journey of faith. And everyone in here is on a journey, has been on a journey, and will continue on that journey. And that journey has different pit stops, if you will. And so what we see here is what's typical of God and how he interacts with us along this journey of faith. So three points today. You ready? Three points. First, Faith is a journey. Secondly, journey becomes encounter. And then third, encounter becomes obedience. So let's start with uh, seeing how faith is a journey. And it's really important that we remember that faith is a journey. The coming to faith and the continuance in faith, it's a journey, it's a process, because we can make the mistake of thinking that the arrival at faith, it should be a no-brainer, it should be quick, but faith, real faith, and we're talking genuine, deep, profound, powerful faith, that's not an instant thing. It's not overnight. That takes a long, tedious process that God's involved in. It's much more messy than just instantaneous. I heard Tim Keller say that coming to faith is a process. People need multiple exposures to the gospel. They need multiple different kinds of presentations of the gospel. People need uh, to make little decisions over time. They need to have slight realizations that create more openness. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. We're just talking about micro steps along the way. That's just the reality of the situation as we're talking about faith. It's a journey. It's true for someone far from God. It's true for me. It's true for you. We're all on a journey. So 24 and 25, let's look at Thomas's journey. Thomas, 
one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Remember, the disciples, the rest of the disciples were hiding out of fear of the Jews just as after Jesus has been killed, crucified, the tomb has been empty, the report's gone out, but Thomas was not with them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, remember he was, he was wounded by that spear, he says, I will never believe unless. I will never believe unless. So a few things that we need to note here. First, obviously, Thomas is not with the disciples. He's on his own. Second thing we need to know is that John records that the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. You see that in verse 24. Uh, in the Greek, that's in the imperfect tense. And the reason that's important is because the actual literal translation of that is they kept telling him, they kept telling him, they kept telling him, they were just assaulting him with this story, assaulting him with, these, with the report of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, so imagine, just if you will with me, you got 10 of your closest friends who've known Jesus along with you for three years, and they're so confident that Jesus has risen. They keep saying it over and over, and they won't drop it. They're not like, at first it might have been a joke, not a joke, they're dead serious. Jesus is alive. He has risen. 10 of your friends are just extremely confident in this reporting. And you won't budge. You dig your heels in. You say, unless I see it myself and literally verify with my own hands myself, I will not believe. Thomas is alone. Thomas is stubborn. Thomas has to see it firsthand. It has to be firsthand knowledge for him to have assurance that this is true. And from what we know about Thomas, this matches his personality. Upon hearing back in chapter 11, upon hearing that Jesus intends to go to Jerusalem, where it's, this is the fever pitch, you know, everyone's out to kill Jesus or follow him at that point in the story. Thomas says, let us go also that we may die with him. I mean, he's just really confident, really self-assured. Uh, in chapter 14, after Jesus tells them, you know where I'm going, Thomas argues with him. He argues with Jesus and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He disagrees with Jesus to his face. So the profile of Thomas is he seems to be pretty assertive and pretty self-assured. He has to verify this himself. There's a lot of resistance, stubbornness. He has conditions in place upon this. He has to find out firsthand. Now, it's not hard to imagine why Thomas would refuse to change his mind there's intellectual reasons why he can't believe. There's emotional reasons why he cannot believe. He needs these claims to be rationally proven. In the Jewish worldview, you know, if you don't know this, resurrection in the middle of history, like a bodily, physical resurrection happening in the middle, that was, no one thought that. No one saw that coming. The Jewish people expected there to be an end times at the end of history resurrection, but not in the middle of history. So intellectually, this doesn't make sense for him. But also, it's not a leap at all to figure that Thomas is emotionally distressed. He feels regret. He feels sadness over what has just happened. I mean, three years of his life seemingly wasted. His dear rabbi, his dear friend, killed and gone, and probably doesn't want to get his hopes up that this is true. So there's, there's intellectual reasons for his refusal to believe. There's emotional reasons for his refusal to believe. But the bottom line is Thomas is struggling here to believe. He refuses to believe for a multitude of reasons. And here's the thing. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus knows it. Jesus is well aware that Thomas is struggling 
with unbelief and resisting. Because if you read verse 27, we'll, we'll get there in a little bit, but when Jesus appears and invites Thomas to inspect his wounds, he invites Thomas to do that. Jesus isn't here in this conversation where Thomas says, unless I see, unless I touch, I won't believe, but somehow Jesus already knew it when he shows up and invites Thomas to do that. It's like Jesus is omniscient. It's like he's God. Further, Jesus would be well aware of Thomas's distress. He's been friends with Thomas for years now. He knows this man. He's well acquainted with this man. He knows that Thomas is struggling. I mean, all these guys, they were, they were hiding for fear of their lives. But the interesting thing here is that in the middle of this struggle, of this resistance, and this refusal, Jesus waits an entire week to show up. Now that's a strange, that's an important detail but we often overlook it. Look at verse 26. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus lets him wait. Jesus leaves Thomas in his resistance and in his distress for an entire week. The question is like, what's Jesus doing for a whole week? You would think that his friends would be his top priority. Jesus can pass through walls. He can, uh, you know, cross dimensions at this point with his supernatural abilities. He can find Thomas whenever he pleases, whenever he wants. But he waits to do it at this moment when they're all together and Thomas is there. He gives it a whole entire week. These are his priority, his dearest friends and followers, yet he waits. Why would he delay? Uh, Parents... Who hates seeing your child in distress, right? All of us. Who hates seeing your child suffer? All of us. Like Nora this morning, we stopped and got some food on, on the way. We didn't get the kids anything because we always buy them stuff and then they waste it. So we're like, we're not going to buy them this something this morning. But then Nora's just crying in the backseat wanting my food. And you know what? It's not out of annoyance that I'm like, give her, let's give her some food. It's like, I, it breaks my heart to see my little daughter suffer. This is, this is what it means to be a parent. You're not happy unless your kids are happy. We just want to relieve our kids' pain and suffering and confusion. Who here has a hard time letting your child make a mess and make a mistake and learn from it and not step in and spare them? It's a struggle for all of us who are parents. You get it if you're a parent. Our instinct is to fix things immediately. And I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that struggle is bad. Now, this might not fit into your theology, but I have to say it. God really is fine taking his time. He's not in a rush to do anything. Even if it means struggle and resistance and mess and pain, God allows us to go through that process. God wants us to go through that process. He allows us to clumsily fumble our way forward. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Literally a parable about how the father is with those who are far from him, his children. The first son asks for his inheritance, goes away and spoils it, wastes it completely, but the father lets him do it. The father lets him do it, and you know what the father... We, we see the father, what else he does in that story? He's waiting on the front porch every morning looking down the road to see if his son will come home, anticipating his son to come home. I mean, he knows his son is going to hit rock bottom and come home and the father's all about it. He doesn't stop it from the beginning. He lets the thing play out. This is just simply what our father does. He lets us live in the mess, in the complexity, in our unbelief and in our resistance. 
Here's one trait about God. We're building a theology of God right now, perhaps. One trait about God that's often overlooked that we need to appreciate more. God is long-suffering. He's really long-suffering. That's a trait that we don't appreciate enough. He has the unique ability to exercise restraint and hold off until the right time. And I say restraint because we know, like Hosea chapter 11, it says that his compassion is aroused within him. He's on the edge of his seat to shower us with grace, forgiveness, and love, but he has the unique ability to exercise restraint and be long-suffering and let the process play out according to his goodness and his wisdom because he knows that's what we need to come to our senses and come to him with a legitimate faith, with an authentic desire. Not one out of circumstance, not one out of just bail me out, but one that says, Father, I just need you. I've come to my senses. I don't have what it takes anymore. God knows that that's what we need, and so he waits until the right time. Now, involved in the waiting of God while we struggle is the necessity that we are stripped of self-reliance and self-assuredness. That's what's happening to Thomas, I'm sure, all this week. God knows what it will take for us to come to our senses, and he's accomplishing something that we can't yet perceive. Again, Uh, Think about the parable of the sower. There's those four kinds of surfaces that the seed of the word falls on. The good seed falls on tenderized, healthy soil, and then it grows slowly and it grows powerfully. It's authentic. It's real. Now, we don't read the Bible through an agrarian lens like the original readers would, like the original listeners would. They understand their whole life through the agrarian culture. And so what they know in the background of that parable is that good soil that's tenderized, that's, uh, that, that, can receive the, that can receive a seed and have a slow but powerful growth, that takes cultivation. And especially in the Judean wilderness or territory uh, surface, you had, to grab, you had to haul the limestone out of there, you had to dig the weeds out of there, the pebbles and stones out of there because it's a desert agrarian culture. So they see and understand what we don't see, that the soil that receives the word, it actually grows. That's authentic, real faith. It has to be tenderized. It has to be cultivated. There has to be some serious work done on the fabric of our hearts. So if you're a seeker here, I hope there are some of you here who are questioning Christianity, interested in it. Here's what you need to know. God will allow you to struggle, and God is not in a rush. He'll let you take that process and that journey. He's he's fine waiting. God will allow life to humble you and disarm you of self-reliance. You have to remember, listen to this, that we are not brains with legs. We think oftentimes that we're just rational creatures who just do what we think and do what is our intellectual conviction. That's not at all true. We're not brains with legs. We're more emotional than we are anything else. And we use our intellect to justify what we want and what we feel what we want to be true. So God has to first disarm our hearts and change our hearts and break our will so our minds can actually be open to the truth without an agenda, without presumptions in the way. And so if you're a seeker, one of the things that you might have against God is the reality of suffering. How could a good God let suffering take place? But in a world of free agency, suffering is inevitable. And here's the redeeming factor about our one true mighty God. He uses what is inevitable, suffering and distress and the mess of life. He redeems it in order to bring you the best thing that you'll ever know, which is him himself. 
He's doing you a favor by letting you fumble through life so you can come to your senses and come to him. If you're a Christian, which is most of us here, again, God will allow you to struggle so that you move into deeper relationship with him. And for some of you here, what that looks like is what's theologically true in your brain through struggle and through that, just that painful process of the journey. What's theologically true becomes subjectively true. It's objective true becomes subjectively true. You know God for who he really is. He's no longer just an idea, but he's a real person, a real being that you have a real dynamic, interactive relationship with. That's what struggle process is going to do for some of us here. What also happens, though, while we wait on God and feel his absence, and that's a part of the waiting on God, is the absence. And it's extremely confounding. And I I just want to say this. In a church like ours that's theologically driven, I've found that a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that relationship with God is my knowledge and doing things the right way. My knowledge, doing things the right way, is central to what it means to walking with God. Certainly there's things to know. Certainly there's a right way to do things. But when you make that central, as if that's what it means to walk with God, then what you actually do is you trap yourself in spiritual immaturity because those things are often shields we hide behind so we don't have to do the deeper work of spiritual formation, the deeper work of actual transformation in our inner being. So God has to confound you and has to let you struggle and has to feel, you have to feel his absence so you can let down your shield and let him probe deeper into the places of your inner man that is unhealed and unformed and in turn deepen your connection to him so that love and trust, love and trust become central to what it means to walk with God, not just what I know and the right way of doing things. And I'm telling you, this struggle is going to be, it's going to happen to all of us. And if you don't respond to the struggle rightly, let God probe you. Let him do the deeper work. Make yourself available to him. I'm telling you, if you keep up the shield and hide behind your knowledge in the right way mentality, you will eventually lose steam and lose the will to follow Jesus because keeping up appearances and seeming in control, it only motivates for so long. It only keeps us going through the, the journey of faith so long. So God is not in a hurry. He lets us struggle. So we move from superficial, controlled, safe relationship with God to deep trust, deep love relationship with God. Faith is a journey. Jesus waits a whole entire week. He's not in a rush. So we're in this journey of faith. That's how it is. That's the reality of the situation. But now, as we continue through the story of Thomas, we're going to see that in this journey, the next pit stop that we make is there is encounter. The journey of faith leads us to encounter with Jesus. So I want you to notice several details in this passage, in the interaction between Jesus and Thomas. First, notice that Thomas has conditions. Verse 25, he says, Unless I see, unless, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Thomas 
has conditions set on Jesus. I'll believe as long as. I'll believe as long as. So here's a man who's stubborn, who's resistant, and those two things keep him from belief. Thomas has placed his conditions on Jesus, and we are just like Thomas. We all do this. We all place conditions on Jesus. None of us originally go to Jesus for his sake. Usually we have ulterior motives and we place those conditions on Jesus. Jesus, I'll take you if you don't offend me. Jesus, I'll take you if you make me happy on my terms. Jesus, I'll take you if you agree with me and don't contradict me. Jesus, I'll take you without the sin, the hell, the judgment talk. We never go to Jesus for his sake and his sake alone. We always place conditions on him, limits on him, restrictions. So that's what Thomas does kind of distance himself, unless. But no, go to verse 26, and you see that Jesus, what does he do? It's a small detail, but it's really important as we, as we get this picture of what's going on here. Jesus takes the initiative. He appears in the locked room and stands among them in verse 26 and says, peace be with you. Small detail, but it's one detail of a greater picture. Jesus, first and foremost, takes the initiative, and look what he does in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, I think what's interesting here, as you just sit and meditate on this verse, is that the risen, glorified Jesus has wounds. The risen, glorified Jesus in this transformed, spiritually, supernaturally transformed body carries his wounds, his scars from the the crucifixion. That's strange, isn't it? Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but why would that be the case? 2 Corinthians 4.17, just a helpful cross-reference, I think, says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What Paul is saying in this verse is that our wounds, right, our light momentary afflictions, these are emotional wounds, uh, psychological wounds, sometimes physical wounds in the name of Jesus if you live elsewhere. What Paul is saying is in in this verse is that our wounds we carry throughout our life, eventually one day in glory, they will be healed, but for now, they serve to redirect our hearts to glory. Our wounds, they're memorials to our future hope. They remind us of the future prize, the future treasure, all of our wounds that we have to carry throughout our life. Now, commentators say that in the same way, Jesus' wounds are a memorial. That's why he has them in his resurrected body. They're, they're a memorial to something. But, they're not the same kind of memorial that Paul is talking about there in 2 Corinthians 4. It wouldn't make sense for Jesus' Jesus's wounds to memorialize glory since he's already achieved glory. He's glorified. So then what do they memorialize? What would Jesus' wounds remind him of, remind us of, remind Thomas of as Thomas sees them? His wounds are a memorial to his love for us. This is what he suffered for me. The hands, the side, 
That was for me. That was for Thomas. That's for you. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The wounds of the risen Christ, the wounds of the risen glorified Christ, they're a memorial to how much he loved us when we didn't love him. How he first loved us. Which is why Thomas likely drops his conditions. Do you see that? He says, unless I see, but not only see, but touch the wounds with my own hands, I will not believe. And Thomas doesn't touch them. Jesus appears. Peace be with you. He invites Thomas to inspect him. Thomas lays his eyes on Jesus, sees the wounds himself, and that's all that he needs. Verses 27 and 28. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas only sees, he doesn't touch, at the sight of the wounds. His resistance is melted. His unbelief is disarmed. And then he makes one of the strongest confessions in the entire book of John. My Lord and my God. You can't get much more spot on than that. And again, what commentators conclude is that Jesus' wounds must have disarmed Thomas's resistance. The persuasion, though, is not necessarily Thomas's head, but it was his heart, because it is the love of Jesus, his initiating, overwhelming love, that concludes the wait. The wait is over. And this encounter with the love of God and Jesus, it pulls Thomas into deeper belief. Thomas sees these wounds and knows that it's for him. We see these wounds and we know it's for us. If you're here as a seeker, again, you should see that God has you on a journey and that that journey is meant to lead you to an encounter with his love for you. So you might have intellectual or emotional reasons for resisting, but ultimately, I'll tell you this. It is the love of God that is made known in Jesus, his wounds, his crucifixion, that will convince you to drop your resistance, your conditions, and devote yourself to him. His love is going to be what wins the day, not an argument, but his love. When you come into contact with his love, and you'll find that when you encounter the love of God, the reality that God loved you first even when you were weak and selfish and addicted and lost wherever you find yourself, when, you, when that clicks, that God loved you even then and there, when that clicks and that hits home, many, if not all of the reasons you held against him for refusing him, they just dissolve because you learn to trust him. Like if this is who God is, he loved me when I was far off, when I, when I had nothing to offer when I could never pay him back, when I was lost and in sin, and this is how he initiated with me, this is what he's done for me, it just convinces you that this is a God you can trust. You don't need every single explanation there is. And so just know that everything in your life, it's purposed to lead you to a moment where you come face to face with how much God loves you. 
It could be this moment right now. If you're here as a seeker and you're hearing me speak to you what we call the gospel, the good news, that God sent his son to earth to die in your place and give his righteousness to you so you could stand before God, your father and creator, forgiven, reconciled, with an everlasting love that can never be broken. When you hear those words today, God has led you to this moment. So you hear those things and you might trust them and have your life changed forever and walk with God, the most loving being there is. Christian, your life, it should be marked by encounter. So we're talking about encounter. This journey leads to encounter. And so Christian, if you're here as a follower of Jesus, I really do hope that your life, your life with God is characterized by encounter with God. I mean, where you actually are moved by him or when you have an intellectual realization that everything clicks and something just grand makes sense, the light bulb goes on and just your framework for life has just changed and life makes sense now or that his love for you, his grace and mercy he's shown for you, just it just moves you. Yesterday, I'm driving in the car uh, just by myself wanting to be alone in prayer and my mind is drifting in prayer and I'm just thinking to myself, God, what would I be and who, what would my life be if you had never initiated and you had never won my heart with your love and you never died for me and convinced me that you were for me? Like, what would I be? I don't even want to begin to imagine the type of person I would become, the type of life I would have. It would be a train wreck. It would be a shame. Do you have those encounters, those realizations with God that bring you to your knees, that move you, that, bring, that move you, you're in your affection for him, that cause you to want to respond with love and trust to him? Look, encounter is typical. People encounter Jesus in the Gospels. People encounter God through the Spirit in Acts. People should encounter God today in their relationship with him. If we really believe our Christian theology, we should just as strongly believe in Christian spirituality, meaning having encounter with God. So the journey, it makes a pit stop at encounter. You should be moved from time to time. You should be electrified. You should have your jaw drop. You should have these um, life-altering realizations from time to time. And I have found that when my heart knows God, when I have those encounters with him and the character of God, who he really is, becomes real to me, all those questions again, all those questions, those doubts, that resistance I had, it becomes so much less important because knowledge of who God is becomes the better explanation, a sufficient explanation for any of my questions or struggles. And so I hope that encounters happens in your life. You know, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, they said things like there would be times where they would pray and they would feel the love of God poured into their heart, shed abroad in their heart so powerfully and so um, authentically that they would have to ask God to stop. It was just so powerful to them. That's what I'm talking about here. Having a real relationship with God that actually makes a difference in your heart. So if you want encounter with God, be sure that you're pursuing him for the right reasons then. Not status, not influence, not appearances. Those things will not electrify you and move you and make your jaw drop. But for his worth. We're chasing him, pursuing him because of his worth. And be sure you're faithful in the little. Scripture, prayer, community. These are the means of grace that God uses to have encounters with you. 
Be sure your life is constructed to create space for you and God. So many of us here, <laughs> so busy, so distracted, so exhausted. We, don't, we haven't taken the disciplined steps on the front end to create margin, to remove distraction, to make those careful, hard choices at the beginning so we're not tempted later on to just veg and coast. Create space in your life for you and the Lord. And be sure to be resolute about sin in your life. There's nothing that will kill your intimacy with Christ more than apathy towards sin. Without any of these, you'll miss encounter with God. So in this journey of faith, we're all meant to encounter him. That's one of the pit stops. But it's not the destination. Encounter with God is awesome. It's not the destination. It's a pit stop along the way. Encounter, actually, it should usher us into deeper obedience. Obedience. You love that word, obedience? Yeah, we're going to talk about it. Got to obey. After Thomas has this encounter with Jesus, he says in verse 28, My Lord and my God, what a confession. And again, like I said, very few people get as close to Thomas at this point in redemption history and how God, who God has revealed himself to be through Christ. Like Very few people come close to what Thomas realizes here, which is that Jesus is God. Jesus is king. He is the creator in flesh. He is the highest authority. And I want you to notice in verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. Like Jesus is the highest authority. He gets the final word over my life, over my person and my being. He's not just an authority figure of many to choose from, but Thomas, what Thomas is saying here is that if he brings this reality into the center of his life, that he loses final say. That there are no more limits and there are no more restrictions on what Jesus can do and what Jesus can ask. Basically, if he takes these words, my Lord, my God, into the center of his being, it will alter everything. It will change everything. So Thomas's encounter, it leads him into deep, 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 deep obedience. Submission to the authority of Jesus in his life. My God, my Lord. Now a word on obedience. Obedience is complete, meaning nothing's off limits. Obedience has a speed. It's immediate. If it's anything less than complete and immediate, it's disobedience. Like delayed obedience is just another way of saying disobedience. Um, obedience with limitations is just another way of saying disobedience. So Jesus said, follow me, and the disciples did what? They left their nets and they followed him. So look, I know obedience, it may not be the most exciting concept for us to talk about. We like to talk about other things instead. It gets a bad rap because it's associated with obligation. It's associated with duty. But here's what I want to tell you. Obedience, when it comes from the overflow of encounter with God, it's a joy. It's a sweet burden. It's a delight. It gets transformed from a duty into a delight. Think about Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke, it's easy. My burden, it's light. What Jesus might ask of you, what he demands of you, 
what he calls you to, it's not meant to kill your joy. It's meant to infuse you with joy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You will never see it this way if you don't have an encounter with his love, if you don't know how much he loves you, if you don't know what he's done for you, if you're not in touch with how far he's gone to initiate his love for you, improve his love for you. If you don't make that pit stop in this journey, then your obedience, it will not be a response to God. It will be something else. It will be a way to control him, to have a transaction with him, to meet him halfway and retain some sort of control. For obedience to be obedience, it must be a response to God's love for you. So here's what I mean. I'll explain it some more. When we understand that it's all grace, unconditional love, totally God's initiation, totally his doing, there is not one thing that God couldn't ask for, right? Nothing's off limits. That only makes sense. If God has done it all, paid the cost, died for us unconditionally, then there's nothing he couldn't ask of us. But if we met God halfway, if uh, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, if we you know, weren't so bad, if we merited anything at all, then we could put limits on our obedience. We could do it only to a certain measure. We could do it only to a certain speed, and that would be totally reasonable, right? If I brought something to the table, then certain things can be off the table. But since God did it all, and that's what his love is, it's an initiating, overwhelming love. Obedience is the only reasonable response, and we're sweetly indebted to God, and we want to obey him now over the overflow of thanksgiving and gratitude. So obedience, it's not a boring hodgepodge burden. It's a response to the love of God for you. Do you think about obedience like that? Obedience is what you do when you love and trust God because of what he's already done for you in Christ. It's the intended end of your journey, loving, trusting, responsive obedience. I, because he has loved me so much, want to be malleable in his hands. I want to be ready on the edge of my seat to move where he's calling me to move. I don't want to withhold anything from him because of how far he's gone for me. And here's what I'm learning in my own life as we talk about obedience, I understand obedience. Obedience, it's our greatest gift we can give back to God. It's our way of showing God just how much we think of him. Our trusting, loving, no limits, unconditional obedience is our way of telling God, this is how much you mean to me for all that you've done for me. It's not like this greatest gift we could give him somehow repays him. We can never repay the infinite debt we owe him. But it's just our small human way of saying, God, this is how much you mean to me. I'm going to trust you and respond to you and obey you. My Lord and my God, my life is yours now. The journey of faith, it takes us to encounter and then to obedience. I have one concluding charge for you as we follow as we follow through the story and conclude now in these next few verses. What a concluding charge here. John wraps up this scene with Jesus' response and then his own commentary. 29, Jesus' response. 30 and 31, his own commentary. First, Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me, Thomas? Blessed, favored, or flourishing. Truly happy is another way to say that. Are those who have 
not seen, and yet have believed. So let's get our minds around this. Thomas is certainly blessed in this moment. He's seeing the risen, glorified Christ with his own eyes. But Jesus says that we, who don't lay our eyes on him, but yet still believe, are more blessed than even Thomas in this moment. How is that? I'm more blessed than Thomas. You are more blessed than Thomas if you have believed in Jesus without seeing him. How is that possible? What does Jesus mean by that? We are more blessed because we have the gift of sacred scripture and the gift of the Holy Spirit who makes it make sense to us. That's confirmed by what John says next, his own commentary, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, we, you've probably heard these two verses. They're kind of famous in the book of John. This is the purpose of the whole book of John. But we often don't connect these statements, that these are all these words written in the book, is that you may believe and have life in his name. We don't often connect this statement to the immediate preceding context, the immediate story of Thomas laying his eyes on Jesus, but Jesus saying there's going to be others who are more blessed than even you, Thomas, who don't see me. Because we have what John has written. That's why we're more blessed. If we devote ourselves to what John has written, his word, we will believe and we will have life in his name. John's gospel, and we can expand this to all of scripture, is meant to move us into life in his name. Or, in in Jesus' words, blessed are you, truly happy, flourishing. Thomas was blessed, but we have a greater blessing. The greater blessing of Scripture and the Holy Spirit who's been sent to illuminate our minds to Scripture. Now let me tell you how this fits in with the entire sermon here. Yes, Thomas shows us that we're all on a journey. Yes, he shows us that this journey leads to encounter. Yes, encounter is supposed to lead us to obedience. But let me tell you, you can go on the journey and have encounter and obey Jesus all in one stop if you have a relationship with God through his word. So Thomas experienced this macro journey, if you will this big life journey, this seasons of life journey that we're all going to go through moving through that journey. But you can actually take a smaller micro version of that same journey day by day in his word. That's what I think we're supposed to see here or conclude here, draw out here. If you're willing now to commit to this micro journey day to day in the scriptures by the Holy Spirit, taking that journey with God, having an encounter with God through his word, and then listening to his word and moving out in obedience, right? That same journey in his word. If you're willing to commit to that micro journey, you then, I'm telling you, will excel in that macro journey, the journey of life that Jesus is taking us on. Dallas Willard says this about scripture and how it makes life make sense. He says this, scripture is an essential part of any curriculum for Christ-likeness. Engagement with the scriptures will bring kingdom order into our entire personality. What he means that by that is over time, scripture will be infused into our being. It will become our instincts. It will become our perception. It will change our framework. It will change our attitude. And he continues and says this, 
I know many people who profess serious allegiance to Jesus and claim him as their savior, but who unfortunately simply will not take scripture into their soul and body and utilize them as indicated. The result, I have to say with sadness, is that they continue to recycle their failures and make little or no real progress towards abundance, life in his name, encounter, or obedience. So basically, without Scripture, we stagnate. We stall out in this journey. We don't do the journey well because we don't get encounter and we don't conclude in obedience. And so he continues, study is by no means simply a matter of gathering information. Okay, that's a great sentence. Study the Bible. Studying the Bible, it's not just gaining more knowledge and information. It's this, intensive internalization intensive internalization of the kingdom order through study of the written word and learning from the living word integrates us in the flow of God's eternal reign. We really come to think and believe differently and that changes everything else. So intensive internalization, day by day devotion to God through his word, bringing it into our inner man. It gives us the unique ability to see how the world, see the world how God sees the world through his reign, through his victory, through his truth. And then we integrate ourselves into that, into that reality, and then we live differently. So day by day, you're devoting yourself to scripture, intensively internalizing it. It changes the way you view things. You begin to see things how God sees, and you find yourself naturally and easily integrating into the reality where he is king, my Lord and my God. Life in his name. You remember the story in Luke 24, as we wrap up here uh, in the the road to Emmaus, two of Jesus' followers, they're walking along, totally distressed. (sighs) They're totally lost heart over all that's happened. Jesus, resurrected Jesus, comes alongside them. They don't recognize him. He's cloaked their eyes spiritually from recognizing who he is. And they're telling him all of their heartache and disappointment, saying, how could this have happened? We thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the prophet. He didn't turn out to be. And then Jesus explains to them the law, the prophets, the writings, how they all are fulfilled in Jesus. And then their eyes are opened and all makes sense. What we draw from that story is we have to be in the word, committed to the word as followers of Jesus bringing it not just into the forefront of our minds, but deep, 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 deep into our personhood and our instincts and our attitude and our framework so that the light goes on and we see things as they really are. And then those, the messiness of life, the confusion of life, uh, the complexity, the journey, it will begin to make sense. You won't be so thrown off and surprised and off-kilter. Instead, you begin to actually be excited. You're like, wow. God is actually at work doing something. So are you on the journey of faith here? Keep walking. Because by God's grace, because God, by his grace, will meet you, he'll melt your heart of stone, give you a new heart, so that you willfully, happily obey him and give yourself eyes to see how your life is moving along this sequence by walking the journey in Scripture day by day. Let's pray together. Lord, 
we want to step into your story, into this journey. We want to integrate ourselves into what you're doing all around us and in us. And so God, cause our hearts to long for your word, to spend time in your word day by day so that we can be changed by it, see things how you see them, and find ourselves within the journey in full confidence that you're at work. God, lead us to encounter. Let us have amazing times with you, amazing times in your word and prayer and in community. And God, give us the heart to obey. No restrictions, no excuses, no conditions. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.